Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm Giadam Sulongkumar, and I'm the host of this channel. Today, I'm here with Dr. Stephen Harris to talk about his book, Buddhist Ethics and Bodhisattva Path, Santi Deva on Virtue and Well-Being. And this is a very um, interesting work, uh, which discusses the work of Santi Deva, specifically on the aspect of um, virtue and the aspect of well-being. And the author actually delves into one of the work by Santi Deva. So this is something which we will actually be exploring on today. So... Let me straight away go to the author himself. So, Dr. Harris, can you tell us something about yourself? Yeah. Hi, thanks so much for having me on the podcast. I'm really glad to be here. Um, I did my PhD at a philosophy department in the U.S. at the University of New Mexico. It's one of the rare departments that does Indian philosophy seriously in the philosophy department itself. So I was very lucky to study there. And then uh, for the last 10 years, I've been teaching Western, but also Indian philosophy at the Leiden University in the Netherlands. So at the Netherlands, um, we have a Dutch language program, but we also started an English language BA program that's been very popular with students. And we do Chinese, Asian, Islamic, and African philosophy alongside Western philosophy in the program. So I'm really happy and very proud to be a part of it. And so the electives I offer, um, my research has primarily focused on Buddhist moral philosophy, particularly Indian Buddhist moral philosophy. And so the electives I offer um, discuss authors like Shantideva, who my book is on, but also Buddha Gosa, Chandrakirti, and many of the other great uh, Indian Buddhist thinkers. Yeah, interesting. So, I mean, this... This is a specific work on Santideva and one of its writings. So um, can you tell me what got you interested in this particular person and work? Yeah. Yeah, so Shantideva, uh, we actually know very little historically about his life. Um, scholars place him at the 7th or 8th century CE. And uh, I think he probably lived in northern India. Traditional accounts that a lot most scholars accept is that he lived at the great Indian University of Nalanda. And I was introduced to, to his thought as a philosopher. I was doing an MA at the University of Hawaii, which is another place that does um, Asian philosophy seriously in the philosophy department. And I, uh, because it was the Buddhist, I was gotten interested in Buddhist philosophy, and because it was the course on author, I did a seminar on this text, on Shatideva's um, introduction to the practices of awakening with one of my teachers there, Roy Parrott. And so we focus primarily, as a lot of philosophers do, on the ninth chapter, the very difficult chapter on wisdom, and looked at Shantideva's engagements with various other Indian Buddhist and non-Buddhist thinkers and worked through this slowly in seminar style. But we also spent a shorter amount of time, but a little bit of time on the rest of the text. And I found myself just really fascinated with Shantideva's deconstructions of our ordinary conception of value much of which happens outside of the ninth chapter. Even though I, I discussed the ninth chapter in my book, I felt myself really particularly called to the rest of the text. So then I went to New Mexico for my dissertation, studied various things. Um, at that time, there's, there was some really good work on Buddhist ethics, but you know this was about 15 years ago. And there were really only a few philosophers writing our philosophy departments on Buddhist ethics. 
And so I was really reading people like Damien Keown and especially actually Charles Goodman, who had started um, as a philosopher at that point that really kind of encouraged me. And I thought, okay, this is actually a really interesting description of happiness and virtue. And, you know, it belongs in philosophy departments. So I ended up doing my dissertation on a related topic on Shantideva, Shantideva and more demanding us. And then ended up moving to the Netherlands. And then over time, um, you know, my thoughts progressed. And uh, with the current study, I wanted to look more closely at the structure of Shantideva's arguments in the text. And the book came out of a result of that. Yeah, quite interesting. So um, can you tell us something about Shantideva? What kind of school did he belong to? And what kind of uh, things that um, he usually kind of thought about and wrote on? Yeah. So he was, as I said, we know almost nothing historically about him, but we're fortunate to have inherited two of his texts uh, that are still extant and now have been translated. Uh, my study focuses on the shorter, the more influential of these. And so this is a conservative translation of it, the one I tend to use is the introduction to the practices of awakening. A lot of times you see a longer translation guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life, which is also uh, kind of a, gives you a sense of what the text is. Um, and so the topic of the text is the Bodhisattva, who in uh, Buddhism is the being of infinite compassion, who makes this outrageous vow to eliminate all the suffering of all beings. Um, so this places Shantideva in the Mahayana school. Um, the ideas of the Bodhisattva come from mainstream Buddhism. The historical Buddha himself was said to be a Bodhisattva. But in Mahayana Buddhism, um, Shantideva is about the 8th century, and Mahayana Buddhism begins probably about 800, 900 years before that. So he's already part of a long, rich intellectual tradition. Uh, but they place more and more emphasis on the Bodhisattva and start to develop the idea that not just exemplary persons like the Buddha, but ordinary persons too should start to train in this path. Um, and then he's usually placed in the Majamaka school. Um, the Mahayana school develops two kind of sister philosophical schools, the Yogacara and the Majamaka. And so Majamaka is distinctive in its radicalization of the core Buddhist idea of the absence of any metaphysical self, sometimes referred to as, as no self. Um, and they radicalize this to say not just persons, but all phenomena, anything that exists is empty of intrinsic existence or essence, the Sanskrit term is svabhava. Um, and then for Shantideva and many of the great ethicists working from the Majjhimaka tradition is actually realization of metaphysical empty of emptiness um, that liberates one from the from the negative emotions and allows one to attain happiness and then finally nirvana. Um, and so Shantideva, one of the things I kind of try to stress in my book, this isn't kind of the central purpose of the book, but I think sometimes people it's easy to misunderstand the Mahayana movement as being in opposition to the mainstream and the early Buddhist movement. And of course, um, as Buddhist philosophy develops, it splinters into modern philosophical schools. And indeed, Shantideva and Majamaka disagree with some of those schools. But Shantideva and actually all the major Indian Mahayana thinkers accept all the basic tenets from early Buddhism, ideas like metaphysical selflessness, the unsatisfactoriness of ordinary existence, dependent origination. And uh, so their contribution is to, I think, 
in a philosophical vein, you can think of them. Sometimes I think of Shantideva as sort of systematically beginning to think through some of the ethical and psychological consequences of the early Buddhist view. So one of the themes of my book is trying to show how these early Buddhist tenets and these early Buddhist ideas reoccur over and over again and are deployed in different ways uh, in his text. Yeah, yeah. I mean, quite an um, elaborate explanation about Santideva and, you know, the way you got interested in it and how your book deals into his work. So coming specifically to the chapters, um, the, the opening chapter is about uh, virtue theory and how you kind of, you know, bring out the aspect of the virtue being the central component of well-being in Santideva's work. And you also discuss uh, these two components called the perfections and the pathological emotions. So can you kind of uh, explain what does uh, this mean? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, my previous work on Shantideva focused on a variety of topics, but particularly I was interested in um, this idea of moral demandiness. So moral demandiness is um, the concern that a particular ethical theory makes unfairly high requirements of its adherents. Um, and so I got interested philosophically in Shantideva because it seemed as though, on the one hand, as a Mahayana Buddhist, he seems to place enormously high uh, prescriptions on those who follow this path, um, develop limitless compassion, work tirelessly for the sake of all sentient beings. Um, and at the same time, this is a common Mahayana view, but he is just so explicit about it. He claims that the Bodhisattva path is self-beneficial to all types of persons, to those outside of the path, to the extent that they, uh, they um, accept aspects of the path, to early Bodhisattvas and all the way up. And so I thought, well, you know, how on earth does this go together? You have this kind of radicalized conception of altruism, which seems as though, and sometimes I think the the, the Shantideva's guide, um, I'll just call it the guide uh, to give a short title to it, Shantideva's guide can be misread this. Sometimes you see it as the Bodhisattva sacrificing his or her own well-being for the sake of others. And it just seems like he just really explicitly denies this and says, no, compassion, Bodhicitta, which is the root motivation to become a fully enlightened Buddha for the sake of all sentient beings, radical giving, giving oneself, giving all one's possessions, these are self-beneficial. So I kind of took this as a philosophical puzzle. And uh, the answer is the standard Mahayana answer. It's not distinctive to Shantideva. But he just gives a really beautiful, elegant presentation of it. At least a central component of the answer, I should say, and that's that we have these two sets of mental states. Uh, we have the, what I'm translating in the, the Sanskrit is klesha. In the text, I'm translating as pathological emotion. Pathological, this is Jay Garfield's influence. He convinced me to do this pathological pathos, meaning suffering. So pathological, what causes or constitutes suffering. Um, these are the mental states of delusion, reification of self, craving, anger, jealousy, arrogant pride in an unstable mind. And throughout the text in sort of bewildering detail, Shantideva articulates what the pathological emotions are and how they impoverish one's existence. Socially, mentally, they're emotionally painful, they destabilize the mind. 
Um, as a, a part of his Buddhist heritage, he believes in rebirth. So one is reborn into negative results as a result of them. And the solution is to develop uh, what, I what I talk about as the um, virtuous mental states. And usually he uses this term of perfection, but also there's some other virtuous mental states which aren't perfections, but are just as important to him. And so this is things like compassion, generosity, uh, patience and wisdom. In fact, my study focuses primarily upon those uh, four virtuous mental states. And then he has some others as well, um, ethical discipline and meditative concentration, mindfulness and introspection. And the virtuous mental states stabilize the mind. They act as the antidotes to the pathological emotions. They eliminate them. And so they protect their um, possessor from the root of all suffering, uh, the pathological emotions. And, and again, this is really distinctive uh, to Shantideva's strategy in the guide. He puts a lot of emphasis on other regarding uh, virtuous mental states or virtuous emotions, particularly in focusing on compassion, who is to remove the suffering of others, and generosity. We initially think of generosity as offering all one's possessions to others, other than he also thinks of the psychological consequences of it. Um, and so this um, is his solution to this philosophical puzzle that I had. Well, how does um, how do you combine this radical commitment to altruism um, in a way that's self-beneficial? Well, it's egoistic behavior manifested as a pathological emotions that really are suffering, cause all suffering, but really are suffering for Shantideva. And it's the various virtuous mental states, the other regarding mental states, and the other supporting virtues uh, that eliminate them and uh, constitute at least uh, the, the well-being of at least the developing bodhisattva. And the one thing I'll mention, just to kind of introduce the overall project, and so I tried to kind of lay this out in the first chapter, is a lot, I mean, there is this discussion about how to describe Shantideva's insights, uh, whether we should call it a more psychology or phenomenology, and authors who um, emphasize this way of describing his text quite rightly, point to his focus on virtuous and afflictive qualities of mind, his continual reference to mental experience. Um, so I often, I also use this language and I use as a study of Shantideva's moral psychology, but you know, in contrast to some other Mahayana texts like um, parts of Vasubandhu's um, Treasury of Mental Experience, Shantideva doesn't only characterize the virtuous and the afflictive mental states, but he also offers series of intellects trainings, which include argumentation to develop them. And so I think when we kind of look at that aspect, I mean, I think like a lot of the ancient Greek thinkers, like the Stoics, for instance, also going along with this, the regulation of desire and the rectification of desire, replacing self-interested desire with uh, bodhicitta and compassion, uh, uh, motivation of states directed towards other others' benefits. This is such a reoccurring um, uh, emphasis of the text, but I think we also have to think of it as providing a study of virtuous character. And this is why I use that language of virtue. So a virtue here, first of all, just in terms of mental experience, you can call it virtue because this is human excellence and it's well-being conducive. 
but also when we think of virtue as a habitual disposition to respond excellently in all relevant situations, this is what Shantideva is trying to accomplish. Not He's interested in action, but not limiting his account to action, but also really essentially for him that we respond excellently mentally to whatever uh, circumstance comes out. So I think what we end up with is this really powerful characterization of human excellence that where do we place it in terms of a cross-cultural uh, philosophical conversations? I think kind of the 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 uh, the virtuous uh, the sage of the Confucian tradition, um, uh, Aristotle was virtuous, uh, the the man of practical wisdom. Um, I think the Bodhisattva kind of needs to take its place alongside these cross-cultural studies of virtue. So that's why I use this term virtue, not in any in any sense in disagreement with the uh, the philosophers who very accurately uh, pointed out that mental experience is absolutely essential to the account he gives of a morally exemplary life. Yeah. Um, so that's why I tried to lay out yeah, after a while. Uh, yeah, 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 great. I think along the way you have also kind of touched on some of the aspect of uh, generous generosity that Sandy Deva talked about, where it's a sense of abandoning one's, uh, you know, aspect of ownership and attachment that is there. So moving on, uh, you know, um, there's this topic that you, um, there's this um, topic that you talk about here, which is the aspect of anger and how Sanditeva talk about anger and where there is this two perspective of subject-oriented yeah. strategy and also the object-oriented strategy. So what is this about? Can you explain us? Yeah. Yeah. So this is the famous chapter six of the guide, uh, one of the favorite and the most influential chapters in um, Shantideva's school. So I analyze this in chapter three of my study. And so Shantideva um, takes anger to be the traditional uh, Buddhist conception of anger, which is the wish to harm sentient beings. Not kind of mentioned, you know, if we think about um, kind of recognition, like kind of emotive recognition to injustice, I want to kind of flag it as a question whether Shantideva would reject that. Like when he talks about anger, he means um, the wish to harm another living being. That's kind of specifically what he's arguing against. And in, so in um, chapter six of the guide, um, he gives a characterization of and a series of therapeutic treatments. And in this chapter, they're actually, I think all of them are arguments. Um, this is where his argumentative voice really comes out very centrally. Uh, to develop shanti. And I'm going ahead and using the usual translation of that as patience. He doesn't define it, but he characterizes it as a tranquil state of mind that's resistant to situations of animosity and distress. And so uh, the patient mind is a mind that's free of anger. And then um, there's actually been a lot of philosophical attention um, that's been very influential on me to this chapter because Shantideva uses such a strong argumentative voice in the chapter. And one of the things I really tried to do in the book, um, so there's a lot of attention that goes to a famous argument that, that takes place um, about 20 verses into the chapter, the really quick, much too quick, but the really quick summary of this argument is he argues that anger arises when we misperceive the object of our anger, the person who tries to harm us. We misperceive the enemy, the person who tries to harm us, as possessing a level of control and autonomy that they don't actually possess. 
So here in the background, there is this Buddhist tenant of metaphysical selflessness, but explicitly he draws attention to the supporting Buddhist metaphysical tenant of dependent origination. And we say when we take a look at um, the one who tries to harm us, that wasn't a freely chosen action. It arises because of that person's own causes and conditions, particularly the anger that arose in their mind. And then all of the causes and conditions that support the performance of that harmful action, causing Virtualize and so on. And then we'll realize when we when we recognize this, we'll realize that that robust sense of agency we imputed to our enemy um, is illusionary. It doesn't exist. And our attitude will be, he uses the example of stomach bile. It would be irrational to be angry at stomach bile because it doesn't intend to harm us. Likewise, uh, when we um, focus on the dependently originated uh, nature of harm, anger towards enemies who seem to harm us deliberately is similarly irrational. There's been a lot of good philosophical work on this, and I cite and reference much of that in my book. Um, but in my text, and I also explain this argument and what I take to be Shantideva's um, most influential arguments, but in my book, what I really wanted to do was try to show how his arguments function in relation to the chapter as a whole, in relation to whatever else he does in the chapter, and in relation to his goals. And again, I'm drawing upon some really good sources here. I mean, um, sources from the Tibetan tradition, but especially 20th and 21st century commentators on them, on Shantideva. But what I think when we look at the chapter as a whole, you can see that the argument that I quickly glossed is only one of three interlocking and overlying strategies he gives in the text. And they're actually really intuitive. I mean, his arguments, I think, are philosophically interesting. But one thing I really love about this chapter is you can kind of stand back and say, well, here's the basic idea. And even though it's not obviously right, I think there's something plausible and gripping about it. So his what are his three basic ideas about anger? Why is anger irrational? Well, first of all, it's harmful. It disturbs the mind, it disrupts social relationships, it causes rebirth in a negative mental, in a negative realm. Uh, it causes emotional pain. Um, so patience, a stable set of mind, protects us from the suffering that anger causes. And then second, um, this is what I call the subject-oriented strategies to eliminate anger. He gives a series of techniques and argumentation, again, plays a, a key role for him, that claims that anger is irrational because it doesn't arise purely because of the situation we find ourselves in, but it arises as a result of our own subjective condition. And so here, kind of the therapeutic voice, I think, is even a bit stronger. And again, this is just straight, not even Mahayana, but mainstream Buddhism. He says, well, what's the cause or condition of anger? It's what the Sanskrit is, Dalmanasya, sort of a neutral translation of this is mental pain. Like, I feel anger. I wish to harm another being because I have in some way been mentally wounded. I'm sort of experiencing this moment of emotional suffering, if you like, because I've been insulted or because I've been physically hurt or because I've been disappointed. And then I lash out in anger as a response. And then he sort of delves one step deeper into the causal train. He says, this mental pain itself 
it's caused by the frustration of desire. My desires are frustrated, are sort of mentally hurt, and then anger lashes out as a result. And so this um, is just kind of his presentation of basic Buddhist categories, like the, the 12 links of dependent origination, and also the Four Noble Truths. What's the cause of suffering, and here are the suffering of anger? Well, it's the frustration of desire, which causes mental pain. And so then what he does for a series of verses that I try to explicate in the book, is he gives us various treatings to protect the mind and make it resistant mental pain. He claims humans have great potential to overcome the ability to feel wounded by the various negative situations that life gives us. Also, I kind of want to just point out, though, I mean, something I really want to come out in the book is that even though this is therapeutic treatment, I mean, he's trying to eliminate anger, protect well-being, enhance well-being, argumentation continues here. And, you know, I can say here, well, what's the argument? Well, anger is irrational because it really doesn't have so much to do with that person out there in the world who's harming it. It's my own condition. It's that I've been hurt. You know, and again, I think we can give intuitive reactions to this. You know, I've yelled at, you know, someone I love. And then I say, well, you know, it really wasn't about you. Here's the way my day went. You know, here's what I was enjoying right now. This was my mental pain, my response to my mental pain. Shantideva wants to take exactly that common sense insight and radicalize it. Say all anger is like that and all of it can be eventually wholly removed. And then we just combine this with uh, where I began, um, what I call the object-oriented um, strategy. Anger arises not only because of our subjective condition, but it arises because we misperceive the object, the, uh, the enemy who harms us. How do we misperceive it? Or from a narrow perspective that doesn't take all relevant factors into account. How do we misperceive it? I, he gives a number of different arguments and a number of different illustrations, but the one I just glossed at the beginning of my explanation um, is his most famous and his most worked out example. We misperceive the one harming us as possessing a level of agency and a level of autonomy that when we really think about the dependently originated nature of reality, they never possess. And what I really want to do is combine these three, say, okay, the dependent origination argument is really important. It's philosophically interesting, but we get a richer picture of Shantideva when we say this is part of his overall strategy of protecting well-being and preparing the Bodhisattva to help others by recognizing the harmfulness of anger. So it's irrational because anger destroys our happiness you know, recognizing that it comes from a destroyed mind uh, that's mentally hurt, and then recognizing that there's also this objective condition, it arises because um, misperceiving the world and misperceiving or I'm not realistic about the situation that I'm actually in. Yeah, interesting. So coming to the next question, which is about desire and joy. And where you talk about Shantideva talking about desire as a form of carving that contaminates social relationship, but also uh, it also kind of abhors certain sense of emotional pain that is there, and also how joy plays a role in the you know whole of these um, um, aspects of human relation that is happening. So can you you know um, elaborate this more? Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, one of the themes throughout is uh, desire. Shantideva's ad towards desire and uh, this actually has already uh, kind of come up though i haven't talked about explicitly in the podcast um it comes up in his treatment of 
generosity, uh, patience, and compassion as kind of a central element of it. And again, you know, this is just um, completely indebted to the early Buddhist tradition where craving, uh, impoverished forms of desire are uh, given the explicit uh, characterization as the cause of, of dukkha or suffering. And so in terms of generosity, ultimately generosity for Shantideva is not merely giving objects to others, but of eliminating all craving towards what's already in one's possession. In terms of patience, I mentioned already in my response to the patience question, anger arises as a result of mental pain, which itself arises as a result of frustrated desire. And so to finally eliminate anger, uh, we don't merely eliminate desire, but it's transmuted into compassion and bodhicitta, the wish to become a fully enlightened Buddha for the sake of all beings. And so I, I didn't mention these, but in the, in chapter six, and I discuss a couple of these in my book, bodhicitta and compassion becomes reoccurring premises later in the chapter. And part of what he's doing, part of what he's doing is simply arguing that anger is irrational, but part of what he is doing is trying to chip away at self-interested desire whose frustration causes mental pain and therefore anger. But where a sort of desire and it uh, is kind of most centrally teaching in the text, at least seems to me is chapter eight, which is a beautiful, long, complicated and puzzling chapter. Um, it's a one puzzling chapter because its title is Meditative Concentration, or the Sanskrit of Bhyana, uh, which is a virtuous mental state of, um, of full concentration on an object of attention. And this is central to the Bodhisattva path. I think it's important to Shantideva. He, right, he quotes Mahayana Sutras that discuss it in his other text. But in chapter eight of this text, which is sort of titled Meditative Concentration, he discusses it and he frames the chapter according to it, but he doesn't really explain it in detail. And sort of philosophers and interpreters um, understand this different ways. Uh, but what it seems to me is the second half of that chapter is explicitly dedicated to his compassion and development of compassion in bodhicitta. These are kind of some of his most famous and most systematic meditations to develop and arguments to develop compassion. And it seems to me that these are deployed and developed by Shantideva as a way of eliminating an impoverished sense of motivation. Uh, what, he's, what he talks about is arising from grasping of the self or atmagraha. So the way kind of connect this, I came to really love this chapter, even though it was kind of a struggle to provide a reading of it. Um, the way he develops this in that chapter is he spends the first 20, 25 verses talking about all of the various dysfunctional ways human beings relate. You know, so he talks about dysfunctional aspects of romantic love, uh, that when we don't possess the one we love, we're tortured by longing, and when we encounter them, jealousy, you know, replaces longing, and our minds are still kind of mentally tortured. And he talks about the inevitable dissatisfaction of engaging with unvirtuous people, 
uh, because of our domination by aggressive social emotions. So here particularly, he talks about competitiveness, but then also arrogant pride and uh, envy or jealousy. And, you know, he sort of says, okay, well, what's the cause of this? Even in the early chapter, he says this with atmagraha, or grasping itself, uh, which um, in terms of any social relationship puts us in an adversarial um, adversarial situation with that person, with each person um, seeking their own benefit from the other person. So even friendships or relations or romantic relations still fall into that impoverished framework. So uh, there's a, a very famous interlude where the Bodhisattva goes into the desert or goes into the wilderness and practices various types of uh, various types of meditations to calm the mind, to further deconstruct the ordinary conception of craving. There's a sequence of verses where disgusting aspects of the body and actually corpses in the cemetery are contemplated. And sharp break in the chapter, about 89 or 90, um, 90 really. And then he introduces a series of arguments and meditations to develop compassion. Um, and here, I mean, one of the most famous, I'll mention two of them. The most famous argument in Shantideva's text comes from 890 to 8103, so the beginning of this section. And the really quick version of it, I give an explanation of the argument, in my book, but the really quick version of it, he says that if we really contemplate somebody of all people to um, suffering uh, and our wish for happiness, we realize that it's irrational to merely prioritize our own benefit. And he challenges his interlocutor to give some kind of justification for self-interested action. And then he argues that um, no such justification can be given. His opponent replies, well, my suffering belongs to me. And there Shantideva says we're okay, but that's only a conventional fact. There's no unified person. And so this can't provide an accurate justification. And then he moves on to another of the really famous and really influential parts of the text called the exchanging and giving meditations. And I can, one of the goals they want to do is to try to treat the chapter as much as they can as a unity and encourage readers to think about the relation between this argument that he gives that appeals to metaphysical selflessness and universal vulnerability pain in relation to these more meditative, although I still think they do argumentative work, meditative contemplations that come in relation to the early parts of the chapter. So in this very famous part of the text called the exchange in self and other meditations, Bodhisattva empathetically uh, takes the position of another. He begins by empathetically taking up the position of the person in the socially inferior position. And he mentally analyzes the, kind of from the perspective of the other person, he looks back at himself and mentally observes, imaginatively observes their negative emotions they are directed towards him. So particularly their envy, which he's already analyzed in the first part of the chapter, um, he analyzes how painful it is for them to see him as superior to them and as uninterested in their happiness. And then he doesn't tell us, he doesn't say, okay, here's exactly what you should, but I think this is really a compassion meditation. And it's, first of all, a way of imaginatively getting in the mind of the other person and sort of from a, a much more direct uh, encounter, um, 
experiencing the suffering they feel that itself can develop compassion. But also the other thing it does is it brings him himself in his ordinary position as the target of all this animosity, keeping in mind that he's vowed to become a bodhisattva and to eliminate the suffering of all beings. And so I think we can also see this as an antidote to his own arrogant pride, which he may not have even recognized that was separating him from the other person. So what I'm hoping the book would do is, to the extent that I can, I've explained these various parts of the chapter, but also, I mean, chapter eight is such a difficult chapter to treat as a unity. And I should mention, it's likely that parts of the chapter eight were added at a later date. They may not have all been done by Shantideva, but however it caught to us, the more I worked with it, it seemed like there was a really beautiful organization of the chapter that we inherit in that, first of all, we can read them as saying the Anatman argument, the argument that I have no rational um, justification for prioritizing self-interest is essential but not sufficient. We also have to combine this with more imaginative contemplation. Um, and then second, these two compassion and bodhicitta techniques themselves we can combine them with the first part of the chapter where he talked about the dysfunction of social relationships and see that these provide the bodhisattva's own antidotes to his own arrogance and his own jealousy. Because all, all of us are in all three of these positions of higher, social higher, social inferior, and social equal. And this allows him, the bodhisattva, him or her, to to no longer experience social dysfunction and social suffering and to interact with others. So I think that when we do this, it sort of brings in what I want to be kind of the reoccurring themes of my book. Um, it shows the way that compassion is not only other-centered, but it stabilizes the Bodhisattva's own experience, both the mentor experience, but also his or her social experience and is conducive to his own well-being or her own well-being or happiness in reality, in ordinary, yeah, ordinary yeah. reality, society. Yes, yeah. So moving on to wisdom, I think um, wisdom is something which is kind of discussed as something which is not only the aspect of the act of the volitional aspect of human being, but also at the same time the bodily act and also at the same time the mental objects that are there, right? The objects that are outside of us. So, I mean, uh, so... Um, can you elaborate more on the Sandideva's understanding of wisdom here? Yeah. Yeah, thanks so much for this very difficult question. The chapter nine of Shanti Deva's guide is notoriously difficult. And this is another chapter where about, we know from uh, the work of previous scholars, about half of the chapter was at a later date. This is true of chapter eight and chapter nine. So, um, I struggle the most with chapter nine, partially because of the abstruseness and the terseness of his philosophical argumentation. Organizationally, you know, it feels like the hardest chapter to me to deal with. So it's been interpreted a number of different ways. And, you know, it's um, for the book, um, I try to be relatively conservative about this. I present what I'm doing as a partial study of Shandi Deva's ninth chapter. Um, so I leave unanalyzed, um, these are very important, analyzed in my book, um, his 
disputes with members of other Indian Buddhist and non-Buddhist schools. And also, I don't treat essentially his account of ultimate reality of itself or his account of Nirvana. This comes into the text. I mean, I have to mention this. But what I'm particularly interested in is the relation of wisdom to the other themes of my text, the development of his other of the other virtuous mental states I've treated, virtuous character, um, and this theme of the happiness of the developing nirvana, bracketing for the most part in my book his account of final happiness or final nirvana. This is an important topic, but it's one that isn't the central focus of my study. So given those various um, clarifications, um, what's the account of wisdom that I focus on? And again, I think this is something that he's deeply indebted to other Buddhist thinkers for. We find a lot of these uh, positions in Chandrakirti, for instance, in his interpretation of the Garjana, that he claims that wisdom is um, the realization of the emptiness of intrinsic existence or essence of our beings. And his claim is that when we um, recognize and when we perceive um, objects, our own experience and other beings as empty of essence, this eliminates all totally and fully all other pathological emotions. And so we've seen pieces of this throughout the text and even in some of my descriptions, I mean, dependent origination is an aspect of wisdom. I talked about dependent origination when I talked about um, his arguments and treatments against anger. But here in Anatmeno uh, Metaphysical Selflessness is part of his argument like, for the irrationality of selfishness in chapter eight. But here in the wisdom chapter, this is where it becomes the absolute focus. And so I develop in the chapter, um, I emphasize a shared concern he has with many of the other, not just uh, Majamaka and Yogacara, but also early Buddhist thinkers, that Buddhist accounts of metaphysical selflessness and emptiness will over negate and destroy conventional reality and the possibility of spiritual practice. So he uh, considers this centrally and he gives an uh, answer that was first developed by Nagarjuna, and that's that um, to say something's conventionally existent doesn't mean that it's non-existent. It means that it's costly dependent. It can't be finded, it can't be found upon analysis, but it still functions when unanalyzed. Um, and so what we get out of this when we take a look at what he does in the chapter as a whole is um, the Bodhisattva continues to relate to conventional reality towards beings, towards the objects of compassion, continues to, uh, to function with, at least for much of the path, a conventional sense of identity, uh, but no longer reifies identity, no longer reifies those he or she experiences. And as a result, um, his or her experience of the world and others is globally transformed in a way that doesn't negate existence, but in a way that frees uh, him or her of pathological emotions. So that's what I try to lay out in chapter nine. It's a way of completing the work that all of the other perfections have already done without negating the work they do of perfecting the Bodhisattva's virtuous character and progress on uh, this the, the path of the Bodhisattva. Yeah. 
Interesting. So, um, is there any other aspects of the book that uh, which we haven't discussed? You think that is important to be brought out and kind of uh, talked about? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much for that question. Um, maybe one thing to mention. Hopefully, the book will make the case, and I hope the kind of our podcast discussion will help to make it. But I mean, you know, I think sometimes when moving towards a text like Shanti Deva's Guide, you know, it's sort of natural to wonder was this a religious text, was this a spiritual text, was this a philosophical text? Um, the answer is all three. <laughs> I mean, absolutely, you know, these go perfectly together for Shanti Deva. And the reason, or one of the core reasons for this, I think one is quite distinctive to him, although um, there's this rich, as you know, there's a rich tradition of epistemological and metaphysical discussion by Buddhist, moral, uh, by Buddhist philosophers, but there's less explicit systematical um, ethical argumentation. There's more psychology, there's therapeutic meditative techniques, there's a lot of philosophical work that happens. Shantideva is the, uh, certainly not only, but the most prominent place where just explicit philosophical argumentation is a core piece of his method. And so one of the things when we do, and this helps place him globally in terms of philosophical conversations, it makes him an ally, for instance, of the Stoics, who also use argumentation to craft character. Um, the negative emotions, the pathological emotions arise because of a misperception of reality. And so intellectual argumentation is not the only but an important tool to at least begin to attenuate mistakes, we become better by arguing more clearly and reasoning more clearly about reality. And so this is why I think for philosophers who may not have spent a lot of time with Buddhist texts, um, don't be discouraged by what's the explicitly spiritual and religious tone of this text. Absolutely, you know, soteriology is a natural category to approach the text with, but philosophical argumentation, you know, a kind of rigorous, interesting philosophical argumentation is a central tool in which, you know, the Bodhisattva develops his or her virtuous character. And then the least thing I'll say is, like all philosophers, you know, I'm so drawn to certain parts of the text where this explicit philosophical voice comes out. But yeah, and, you know, I think um, the, for the last 15, 20 years, the people writing in Buddhist ethics, um, like Charles Goodman, I've mentioned, um, Emily McRae another really great person, Jay Garfield has done this, you know, really point out that not only explicit argumentation, but this conception of value that Shantideva gives and that Shantideva deconstructs, you know, so his attention to dissatisfied aspects of ordinary experience, um, his repeated allusion to, you know, you know, dukkha or various forms of suffering, his description of mentor experience. I mean, this also does argumentative work, even when it's not in syllogistic form. So what I'm hoping to kind of move towards with this book is the idea of taking Shanti Xavier seriously for his arguments, for his explicit kind of arguments that, uh, that take a much more syllogistic form, but also seeing the whole text as a series of interconnected contemplations and argumentations that give a powerful conception of human experience, its value, and what impoverishes it. The whole thing is philosophy, is what I'm trying to say with too many words. 
Yeah, but I think this is a very interesting philosophical take on the guide to the practices of awakening by Santideva, I think. And because of time constraint, we have to end the discussion here. But I think there are so many things to discuss. And I hope the listeners have got at least the argument of the things, uh, the argument that is there in the book. And also the listeners will go back and look at the book and, you know, delve into the topics much more deeper and the philosophical argumentation that is going on and how Sanditeva thinks about this aspect of well-being and its relation to virtue that is there. So um, Dr. Harris has explained this very well and the book is also very well written. So um, thank you very much for that. So if anyone wants to reach out to you regarding the book, which is the best way to reach out to you? Yeah. Uh, probably the easiest thing to do is just Google Stephen Harris on Leiden and my website will pop up with my email account. Um, and, and yeah, just send me an email. I'd love to hear from you, any thoughts you have on the book, any additional resources. And really, I just want to thank you so much for having me on. This was a lot of fun. And I'm really grateful to have been able to have this conversation with you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Harris, for being here at New Books Network. Yeah.